You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks, Daniel. Clearly, we're doing good work. The English major in me is proud that Daniel shared a poem today. Great work. Good morning, friends. Thanks for joining us. Glad you're here. Uh, yeah, if you're, if you're new, we're glad you're here. If you're not new, we're also glad you're here. Thanks for, for joining us at Midtown. You guys, a couple years back, I received an email. And immediately upon opening it, uh, my pulse started to race. Because right there on my screen, inches in front of my eyes, was something so enticing and so alluring that I couldn't help but get excited. The curves were perfect. The light hit at all the right angles. And there was even a link I could click to see countless more images just like this one. And so I slowly hovered my mouse over the link and finally clicked it. After which I was immediately redirected to a website for Tesla sports cars. There's a Tesla ad. Were you guys expecting something different? Today, yeah, spicy today. Today, we are going to spend some time talking about a subject that makes us hold our breath sometimes. Sexual desire. And I tell that story, one, to let us release a breath a little bit, to laugh for a second, because I know this can be an awkward subject. I know this can be a sensitive subject. I know it can be a painful subject for some of us. But I also tell that Tesla story to illustrate another fundamental truth about how our world tends to view sex and sexual desire. That is, as the reduction of humans to the level of objects. See, there's a reason that your mind went where it did when I was telling that story. It's because when it comes to sex, our culture has trained us to see humans as consumer goods, the same way we see sports cars. Remarkable, physically beautiful things that exist for my pleasure, for me to drive on my terms. Our culture sees sex as a consumer good. And that's actually a development decades in the making in the U.S. today. Much of it can be traced back to the year 1960, when a tiny little pill changed the world. Oral contraception, birth control, was invented and made accessible for the public then. And for as much as it has its good and its bad, birth control ushered in a sexual revolution in our country. See, the fundamental assumption of that revolution was pretty simple. Sexual desire is a strictly personal thing, which means it's not meant to be judged or dictated by anyone or anything outside of me. I am the driver. I am the ruler. And sex is about fulfilling my desires. That's what we've been taught for decades. There's been a massive expansion of sexual freedom in these last few years. We've passed laws. We've promoted certain art and messaging along these lines. We've even created entire industries designed to promote sex to be a casual consumer good. For instance, the adult film industry right now is worth nearly $100 billion a year. That is more than the entire economic output of many states in the U.S. We have apps designed primarily to promote casual physical hookups without any other relational baggage. The standard for sex in most states today is simply consent, which is a good thing, but it's just the only standard. 
So long as sex occurs between two consenting adults, then everything else is fair game in the U.S. And so we are more sexually liberated as a country than we've ever been. But here's what's remarkable. In the middle of that supposed liberation, we are also more relationally miserable than we've ever been. There's a woman named Christine Emba. She's an author and journalist. She was a Princeton graduate. She recently wrote a book on this. And she devoted the last few years of her work to researching what sex as a consumer good has done to us. The book's called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And her main argument is this. For as much as we want to make it so, sex is never actually just casual. And our no-strings-attached, easy-to-access approach is actually ruining real human relationships. And this isn't a Christian book, mind you. This is just a Princeton grad who's observing the world around us. And her pushback is actually being echoed across numerous other massive publications that are often considered liberal in our culture. For instance, there was a recent article published in the Washington Post that talks a lot about this. It tells the story of a woman named Rachel. Rachel, in this article, she's a lively and opinionated 25-year-old Midwestern woman. And she says that in most areas of her life, she feels pretty empowered, pretty free to be the person she's made to be, except for one, sexual desire. She reports that something isn't right in her romantic intimacy in her life. Rachel goes on in the article to list off a variety of really unhappy encounters she's had with potential romantic partners. She talks about, for instance, consenting to things out of a desire to be polite or please the other person, but things that didn't make her the most comfortable. Times where she's had extreme acts requested of her in ways she didn't really understand. And instances on dates where she felt that the thing that the person wanted wasn't really her, wasn't really relation, relationship or intimacy, it was just a certain feeling she could give them. And in the article, Rachel says this verbatim, it's not like I was being forced into anything or that I felt unsafe, but it's just not good. It's just not good. And as it turns out, Rachel's experience is not the exception, it's the rule in our culture. Now, there's a recent Pew Research study that uh, described this for us. 67% of Americans today say their dating life is, quote, not going well. And 75% say it is very or somewhat difficult to find someone to date. Clearly, those statistics are represented in this room a little bit, right? And it's so bad, it's so bad that according to a recent CNN study, people are actually having less sex now than at any other point since birth control was invented. And the youngest generations are leading the way. The youngest generations are having less sex than any other generations. We have more freedom than we've ever had, and we are opting out because it's too undefined. It's too consumeristic. It's too uncommitted. It's too unfulfilling. You guys, sports car sexuality is not paying off. Sex without commitment is just leaving us emptier than before. And in that same Washington Post article, the author starts to ask many of these people who are interviewed, well, what would you say would be the cure? What, what is a better picture of relationship looks like? And here's some of the words they used. Listening. Care. Mutual responsibility. One person just said this as a rhetorical question. Can we not just love each other for a single day? As our world is longing for real lasting intimacy and our culture is failing, to provide it. Another New York Times article put it right. We need a new sexual ethic. We're continuing in this teaching series here at Midtown called Glittering Vices. 
We're going through the season of Lent, which is just a time that Christians have set aside for many years to reorient our hearts, our minds, and our bodies back towards Jesus. And in our series, Glittering Vices, we're looking at this old, old framework called the seven deadly sins. It was invented by some monks who knew what they were talking about when it came to human desire. And the idea behind the seven deadly sins is that these are seven human postures of our heart, parts of our hearts that in some way can have a ripple effect into the rest of our lives. And if we can address these seven postures, then what we'll find is a lot of healing for ourselves and for the world. And as it turns out, this obsession that our culture has with making sex a consumer good, using other bodies for our purpose, that's actually not a new thing. It's a very old thing. It's something that the Bible and Christians have talked about for a long time. We've actually got a word to describe it. Lust. Lust. And today, we're going to explore a story that not only helps us identify the contours of lust as it reveals itself in our lives, but also helps chart a path for us towards healing, towards life, towards a better sexual ethic on the other side of it. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in your Old Testament today. Now, this is near the beginning of your Bibles, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and then we're going to skip forward a little bit to chapter 12 as well. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, The words will be behind me on the screen, as you can see here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happens late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, will the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, tents? And my Lord, Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And on the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. And so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. 
the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Now to the end of chapter 11. But the thing that David done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So David messed up. Big time. We're talking coveting, adultery, stealing, murdering, bearing false witness. Half of the Ten Commandments in like 15 verses. Just knocked off the list. And I think sometimes, at least speaking for myself, having grown up in and around the church, bad examples like David's are often where conversations on sex begin. In the church, we often default to what not to do, how sex becomes bad, you shall not sort of language. But when all our conversations start that way, when all our conversations start with the negative, then it can actually become destructive for us accidentally. For Christians, if sex is only ever framed negatively, then it's sometimes assumed that attraction or desire are inherently bad and that we need to avoid those things at all costs. And when you tell people that for years and years and years, and then you say, but when you get married, all of your desires, it's free game, whatever you want to do. It can be like whiplash for people. There are people I know who've been raised that way who are still in marriage just 10 years in and they still have difficulty expressing intimacy with one another because for so long, sex was shameful for them. Desire was shameful. And so if we only frame in the negative, it can be destructive to Christians, but it can also be destructive to everyone else out there. See, if they only ever see a negative picture of sex from Christians, then everyone just starts to see them as either prude at best or oppressive at worst. I mean, think about it in our culture. When's the last time you heard someone say, you know who we should listen to about sex? Christians. <laughs> no one says that, right? Why? Because we usually frame it in the negative. We usually don't give a positive alternative. So I think before we jump into the negative of David's behavior here, which we're going to, I think it's important to start by expressing the Christian positive picture of sex, the you shall, not just the you shall not. Because I think in many ways, the Christian approach to desire and sex is exactly what the folks in that Washington Post article are looking for. It's a more holistic and enriching and loving picture. And it's better than anything our culture hands us. That picture starts in Genesis 1. God creates the entire cosmos and he builds it so that all things will work together in flourishing, in mutual flourishing. The Hebrew word for that is shalom, peace, unity, harmony. And then God makes man and woman in the image of God. And they are to be partners with God in that flourishing. And there's a few different tasks that God gives them. The first task is that they need to cultivate a healthy ecology care for all of the resources that God has given them. 
Second task is that they need to use resources that God has given them to create new and good things. Be good sub-creators with me. And the third thing he says is be fruitful and multiply. How do humans multiply? They have sex. You can say the words. That's okay. They have sex. One of God's first commands to man and woman is a glorious stamp of approval on sex. And not just sex. Keep going in the story. In Genesis 2, when God presents Eve to Adam, he immediately erupts into a rapturous love song about how beautiful she is. Attraction is a good thing in the Bible. Just to be clear, here's how the Bible starts. A naked man singing rapturous love songs over a naked woman in front of God. And that's just the start of things. The text goes on to say that they were both naked and unashamed. The idea in the Bible is that it's bringing together different parts of our beings. They're naked in body, but they're unashamed in soul. It's saying that in physical unity like this, you are bringing together your body and your soul, which means sex and physical intimacy. It's never just a bodily act. It always involves the whole of our beings. In the Bible, sex is the visible sign of a greater invisible reality that we are making ourselves entirely vulnerable, body and soul, to the person in front of us. And by the way, that actually shouldn't come as a surprise to us, that our bodies and our souls are interconnected. We actually realize this in a lot of our culture today. For instance, when we don't get enough sleep in our bodies, what happens in our souls? We get cranky, right? We become really irritable. Our bodies affect our souls. When we exercise well, what typically happens to our souls? We feel great, right? We feel positive. We have a new outlook on life. Our bodies affect our souls, and it goes the other way. When your soul, when your heart is anxious or worried, it often manifests in your body, right? You lose appetite. You can't sleep. What we do with our body is always directly connected to our souls and vice versa. Which is why, for Christians, we've always affirmed that sex inside the confines of lifelong commitment in marriage is the proper way to express these desires. Not because it's some archaic old practice, but because it's the best way to protect bodies and souls. It allows this mutual self-giving in the entirety of ourselves to take place within a relationship that won't just bail on us. It makes sure that we are committed when we are giving ourselves fully to one another. And so the Christian view of sex, it's far from prude or oppressive. It's actually more expansive than anything our world gives us. It's more expansive than bodies as consumeristic products. It says that when we give each other to one another, we're giving our bodies and our souls. And if anyone ever wants to tell you that Christians are prude or oppressive, just keep reading the Bible with them. It's more than just Genesis 1 and 2. Skip forward to the book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom in the middle of the Bible. In Proverbs 5, a father advises his son to commit fully to his wife. And here's what he says. May her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you always be intoxicated by her love. No getting around that one, friends. Or jump to the Song of Songs. It's an entire collection of erotic love poetry between a married man and a woman, and it is spicy, friends. The Christian picture of sex doesn't reduce it down or condemn it. It actually celebrates sex without creating a culture that uses bodies for our benefit. It affirms the profound importance of protecting body and soul. I can't think of a more sex-positive view than this one. But here's the truth. We often settle for less than this. We're often people who 
either out of loneliness or selfishness or just plain desire, allow ourselves to turn sex back into a consumer good. And so for as much as we need to remember the positive, we also need to be aware of the ways that the negative might creep into our hearts and our lives. And that's what this story of David is all about here. This story helps us see three things about lust. What lust is, what lust does, and how we heal from it. What it is, what it does, and how we heal. The story opens here in chapter 11 by telling us that this is the time of the year when kings go out to battle. That was actually one of the primary tasks of a king in the ancient world was to lead men into battle. That's in many ways why he was chosen to be the king. But did you notice what David's doing? He didn't go out to battle. He's staying at home. He's sleeping in. Said he didn't wake up till late afternoon. When he should be leading his men, he's sleeping in. The text seems to be pointing out a sort of laziness and maybe entitlement in David. He is king. He can do what he wants. It's his choice. He rules. And so right away, we're actually shown the soil where lust begins to take root. Lust always begins with entitlement. Lust assumes that my desires, my preferences, myself is the thing that should drive my life. I am king or I am queen and everyone else is subject to me. And you guys, that's the exact opposite of love. Love always begins with prioritizing the other, even if it comes at the expense of self. Love serves. Lust rules. Love sits on a cross. Lust sits on a throne. And so if we want to evaluate where lust might be taking root in us, we have to start with the soil of entitlement. We have to ask ourselves certain questions like this. Do I assume that my physical desires deserve to be satisfied by others in my own way and timing? Do I resent or become frustrated when the other person does not satisfy my desires as I want them to? Or just simply, are my relational pursuits primarily about myself? That's where lust begins. And David's entitlement leads him right up to the roof of his kingly palace. In Jerusalem at this time, the city was relatively small, a couple thousand people probably. So David could see actually over the whole city. The king's palace was visible above or could see above everything else. And from his roof, he's looking around and he sees a woman bathing. And an important note here, bathing on the rooftops in that day was actually common practice. It was one of the few places that someone could get privacy in their small homes. And it was often easier to dry off because you had direct access to the sun. And more than that, we learned that this woman is actually bathing out of ritual and religious purity. This is a part of social and religious practice. She's actually doing the right thing in her time. This is entirely David's fault. So there's no temptation or alluring that she's giving. She's actually behaving exactly as she should. And then we learn that David sees that she's very beautiful. And I want to stop there briefly. It's important to note, just seeing a beautiful woman or a man, just seeing a beautiful person does not necessarily mean you've lusted. At that point, David has not done anything wrong. This is a crucially important point. The Bible does not say that lust is attraction the Bible actually says attraction is good, right? It's part of the created order. But lust is the thought and action to objectify and possess what I see as attractive for my benefit. It is the thought and action to possess what I see as attractive for my benefit. That's why when Jesus speaks about lust in the Sermon on the Mount, the word he uses there isn't the basic word for attraction. It's a word for greedily coveting. 
To lust is to make the other person a means to my end and to justify any thought or action to obtain that person in my mind or in my actual body. So recognizing her beauty, it's not where David goes wrong here. It's what he does next. And it's shown in six really rapid fire verbs. He saw, he sent, he inquired, he sent them. They got, he slept with. Did you notice who's doing the action and who's having the action done to them? Bathsheba is simply the subject of actions done to her. It is all David initiating the action. David is using her, objectifying her, possessing her to satisfy his desires. And more than this, she realistically has no choice in the matter. You couldn't say no to the king in that day. There's only in this story a man using his power to objectify a woman for his purposes. You guys, when it comes to lust, our initial attraction or desire isn't the problem. It's when that attraction or desire leads us to see others as bodies to be consumed and objectified, possessed for our benefit. That's when lust creeps in. That's when it becomes destructive for us. As an example of what this looks like, imagine one day you've gotten off a really long day at work and you're meeting some friends at a restaurant here in Phoenix. And work was one of those like really brutal days, like 10 hours, you didn't even get a lunch break. And so you are getting to the restaurant and you are famished. And so the host or hostess, they come up and they say, hey, we've got a table for you. They're walking you back and you are walking through the restaurant and suddenly your nose is filled with the smells of what everyone is eating. You're like eyeballing, somebody pulls like fajitas past you, right? That are on fire. You're like, that looks amazing, right? You're seeing steak, tacos, maybe if you're a vegetarian, sweet potato, hash, something like that, right? Whatever appeals to you most. Your stomach's grumbling. Your mouth is watering. That's not a bad desire. Hunger is a good thing. It's a natural thing. But there's a way to practice your hunger, and there's a way not to practice it. I mean, imagine as you're walking by, if you were just like snag something off someone's table and just start eating, right? That wouldn't be good. Don't do that. Friends, that would be using your neighbor for the fulfillment of your purposes. That would be objectifying your neighbor for the fulfillment of your purposes. And if that's a bad thing when it comes to cooked meat, it's certainly a bad thing when it comes to other human bodies. If we want to become healthy people, we have to look beneath just our desire and attraction. Our culture just says, chase your desire. Don't look any deeper. Just follow your heart. If we want to be healthy people, we got to look beneath that. We have to become really self-reflective on the ways that we're going about satisfying our desires and whether they're actually limiting people, reducing people down to objects. And so when we look at someone else, are we drawn to their holistic flourishing, to seeing them flourish, or do we want to use them for our benefit? When we see someone attractive, do we seek to understand them as a whole person, or do we hold their image or figure in our head, or try to get with them to feel good about ourselves? Our desires are made to drive us towards deep and holistic, committed care, and lust will only ever interrupt that process. It will only ever make it about quick, non-committed, self-focused pleasure, and it will always leave us emptier than before. So that's what lust looks like. It starts with entitlement, and it prioritizes usury and objectification of the other. But what's so powerful about the story is it doesn't just show, show us what lust looks like. It also shows us what love does. lust does. The first thing we see in this story is that lust destroys relationships. Notice how David makes this act of sexual intimacy, which again, designed to be whole life, soul and body. He makes it only about himself. 
the action is really stark in this passage. There's no conversation between him and Bathsheba. He never calls her by name. There's not even a hint of caring for her at any point or affection or love. And by verse five, at the end, she's just called the woman. And perhaps worse than anything, there's no sense of commitment to her beyond the given moment. When this finally gets exposed or is at risk of getting exposed, what does David do? He tries to bury it, get rid of it. There's no sense that he's going to commit to what he's done or to help resolve the problems with what he's done. This is showing us that we need to be really cognizant of the ways that lust might be subtly creeping in to actually harm our relationships. See, whenever we pursue physical intimacy without relational commitment, we ultimately lack integrity. When I use that word integrity, I mean wholeness. That's what the word integrity really means, is living a whole and unified life. Because when you do that, you're asking someone to do with their body what you're not willing to do with your heart and soul. You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable with one another, but let's not be completely vulnerable in our souls in case I need to get out, in case I need to run away, in case I don't really want to anymore. And in that moment, sex or sexual activity might feel like deep connection to that person, but it's actually really conditional. It's based on a feeling or a life scenario or convenience. And at the end of the day, that's a consumeristic view of intimacy. Because sex is just a tryout to either earn or maintain someone else's attention and affection. It destroys relationships in the end. There's actually a psychiatrist named John White who wrote extensively on this dynamic. He spoke and wrote from his decades of experience with couples and how they navigated their intimacy. He put it this way. He said, the bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing if it's the concrete sign of what's happening in the whole relationship. Mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the fabric of a lifetime's weaving. It has to happen in the whole of ourselves for the whole of our lives. And I actually think many of us really know this if we authentically reflect enough. Think about some of the deepest wounds and insecurities in our lives and in the world. They're usually born out of times where vulnerability was given and then someone pulled the rug out from under you. Divorce or breakups or one-night stands or casual hookups, they often leave us broken, insecure. Why? Well, because we have given ourselves fully in soul and body to someone else and they've ripped it away from us. And we're left feeling less than, vulnerable, reduced, objectified. We know this, friends, deep within our lives. Lust destroys relationship, and not just the relationship between the two people involved. It also destroys relationship beyond the confines of just those two. Uriah and Eliam, the uh, husband and father of Bathsheba here, they were actually David's good buddies. When David was on the run from Saul earlier in the story, these were two men who saved his life numerous times. And look what he's willing to do to them. He's willing to destroy relationship with them, all at the altar of his own self-love. Friends, lust makes those around our relationship just pawns to ourselves. So it destroys relationships, but it doesn't stop there. Lust also calluses us. You know when you get a callus on your hand or on your foot and you touch something and you can't quite feel it the way you used to be able to feel it, right? It's kind of numb or dull. That's what happens in our souls when we practice lust. 
Notice the lengths that David goes to in this story to cover up. He takes actions that if he'd heard he was going to do them before the story, probably never would have thought about doing them. He leads himself to utterly unthinkable acts. Why? His soul has been calloused. He's let his desire take the wheel and it's calloused him to any other activities that might be bad to cover up. And it starts small. He tries to get Uriah to go sleep with his wife, right? That's what that little euphemism, go and wash your feet. That was a common euphemism in the ancient world, meaning go and be intimate with your spouse. But Uriah, at that point, he has too much integrity and solidarity to do that. He's like, hey, I'm not going to do that. My men are out fighting. It would be wrong of me to go and seek pleasure. I'm not going to do it. So actually, Uriah is shown as a foil. He has integrity and David doesn't here. And so David says, well, I got to go a step further. Let's get Uriah drunk, right? And then try to get him to sleep with his wife. And he still doesn't. And then David takes it another step further. He has orders written to have Uriah functionally murdered. And who does he have deliver those orders? Uriah himself. He hands the orders for his own death to him. David's soul is becoming calloused more and more and more, attempting to cover up his lust, maintain his lust. He's calloused. That's always what will happen to our souls when we reduce bodies down in this way, friends. We'll start to embrace practices that we would have previously thought were unthinkable, all to satisfy or to maintain or to cover up. And actually, science, study after study, is showing us that this is true. When we see other bodies and souls as tools to be used for our pleasure, it will lead to the real callousing of our inner beings. For instance, science shows that lust alters our brain chemistry. Lustful activity, casual sex, and porn, it actually creates new neural pathways in the brain. And when it becomes the norm in your life, real mutual relational pleasures become less pleasurable to the point where people who do this on a regular basis actually aren't able to maintain healthy relationships. They can't stay in them long enough. We've also learned that regular porn uses and casual sex are directly connected to increased depression and anxiety. They prevent us from feeling real deep joy. We can no longer feel. It's like our souls can't feel the way they were meant to. There's a tragic example of this in the life of a guy named Hugh Hefner. Has heard of Hugh Hefner? The father of the Playboy empire. And he is praised for decades for being a champion of liberational sex. Just let your desire drive you. And so long as it's consensual, it's great. And then he passed away. And not long after he passed away, a couple of women who lived with him for years wrote a book about what it was like to live with Hugh. And numerous times in the book, they mentioned something really curious. They say, much of his life, but really towards the end of his life, he was no longer able to have deep relational intimacy with anyone. He had to watch really ugly stuff online just to feel anything at all. A life of unbridled lust led him to lose any real deep feeling at all. It led him to be calloused. That's what lust does to us. And finally, David's story reminds us that lust always leads to violence. For him, it leads to murder here. And while that may not be exactly the thing that it leads us to, casual sex and porn usage are linked to increased violence in our world all the time. Lust is never just this private personal thing. Sex is never just this private personal thing. Increased porn usage is linked to sexual abuse in relationships, sex trafficking, and oppressive use of women. Study after study shows. And cohabitation, that is committing to Sexual intimacy without committing to whole life intimacy, it's actually been statistically shown to increase rates of divorce and breakup. Most people get into those sorts of relationships because they think this will help us. It actually does more harm than good. It destroys relationships. 
It leads to violence in those relationships. And casual sex and porn have been shown to create destructive dynamics in co-ed spaces, spaces between men and women. There's actually a feminist author named Naomi Wolf who talks about this. She wrote a book called The Beauty Myth, How Images of Beauty Are Used Against Women. And she describes in the book the way college women think men see them now in our lust-driven world. She says that real naked women are just bad porn. That's how women see themselves in our culture. This is what lust does. It does violence to our bodies, to our minds, to our souls. When we embrace this sort of culture, we ultimately destroy relationships. We become calloused people, and it leads to violence. I think Frederick Buechner summed it up really well in his book, Wishful Thinking. He said, contrary to Mrs. Prude, sex is not a sin. And contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or heal hearts. So what can we do? How do we respond to lust in ourselves? And how do we chart a path towards good, real life? How do we heal? We actually see in chapter 12, in the passage we read, after murdering Uriah, David takes Bathsheba as his own wife, one of many for David, by the way, and then some time passes by. And eventually, a prophet named Nathan has it put on his heart by God to go and expose this in front of David, which was not an easy task for Nathan. This is the king that could have him put to death if he wanted. So Nathan has to creatively figure out, how do I reveal to David what he's done without him getting defensive and maybe violent towards me? And so he comes up with a creative story, as all prophets do. He tells the story of a wealthy man and a poor man. And this process, by the way, of telling a story to a king, it was actually common in that day. Uh, you'd present a case to the king. They were sort of like the Supreme Court, and then they'd make a judgment. So that's kind of the, the flow of things here. Nathan's presenting a case and inviting David to make a judgment on it. And this wealthy man in the story, he has loads of sheep, and the poor man just has one little lamb, and he loves his lamb dearly. It eats from his table, drinks from his cup. It was like a daughter to him. Nathan humanizes the sheep. And the rich man, because he didn't want to use one of his own many lambs to show hospitality to a stranger, rips what the poor man has, steals his one lamb, and slaughters it. And David's response, immediate outrage, right? He wastes no time. His verdict jumps to murder, kill the dude. And then he knows, okay, it's actually not probably it. He probably just needs to pay the guy back fourfold for what he's done, because that was the way the law worked at that time. And it's there that Nathan has him. David has already condemned himself. You are the man. And so David is forced to look at his own actions and see them for what they are, corrupt and broken. And later on in the chapter, Nathan explains that there will be some adverse effects from what you've done. The actions you've taken have ripple effects. The actions you've taken matter, but also, well, God will forgive you, which is a remarkable tension in this passage. That David will have things happen to him and his family that are going to be really hard because of his actions. There's a ripple effect, but also God welcomes you back and restores you. And so in this conclusion, and in the whole story, I think we're seeing a few different things about how we can find healing to lust in our lives. First, we need Nathans in our lives. Shout out to Nathan Martinovich in particular. You need a good Nate dog in your life. That is, we need a community where honesty and confession and grace are all present. We need Nathans who have access to our hearts, who we allow to speak into our lives, to call certain things out, not out of shame, 
but out of honesty and out of love. And so a good question to ask in your own life is, do I have some good Nathans in my life? Some good Nate dogs? Do I have some people who will be charitable to me, gracious to me, but also direct with me? And secondly, am I a Nathan in someone else's life? Have I been given access to someone else? Do I have the ability to speak into someone? This is the first thing. We need Nathans. That's how we heal. Second thing, we need to avoid setting ourselves up for failure. One of the primary reasons David goes down the road he does here is because he set himself up to. He's being lazy. He slept in. He's just meandering around. Oops, there's someone in front of me. I guess I have to pursue my desire. He could have avoided all that by just doing the thing that he was made to do, which was lead his men into battle. You guys, we need to become people who don't put ourselves in situations or relationships or interactions that might lead us to use other bodies for our purposes. And that's going to mean different things for different people here, right? You have to figure out what that means for you. But truly do an examination of your habits. Do you have persistent parts of your life that encourage or promote or lend to objectification of your neighbor? And if you do, Jesus is really clear. He said, cut that off. In the New Testament, he does not mince words. He says, cut off anything that's making you objectify your neighbor because it will lead you to disastrous consequences for yourself and them. Remember, the habits you have are ultimately forming you into the person that you are. So start with the habits. Third way we heal. We need to distinguish attraction from sin. We need to make sure not to overshame ourselves when we see someone attractive, right? That's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's what we do with that attraction that matters. We need to prevent ourselves from taking the extra step of objectifying them. I think Martin Luther put it really cleverly uh, in his commentary on lust. He said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair and biting my nose off, right? You can't prevent someone attractive from walking by, but you can prevent the thought of objectifying them or the action of objectifying them from taking root in your life. There's a friend of mine that actually has, I think, a really helpful tool that's been helpful even for me in my own life for how I differentiate between attraction and lust. He says we should approach other people. And when we see someone attractive, we should say this, God, thank you for making that beautiful person. I hope they have a nice day and that they're reminded that they're beloved. My name is so-and-so. I love my God and I love my spouse, if I have one. I love my kids, if I have them. I love my mother, my family, my sister, my brother, my friends. And thank you, God, for your love of me. By the time you've prayed that prayer, lust has dissipated in your life. You have reoriented yourself towards love, which is ultimately the cure for this. True, committed love. Name the attraction in front of you and then move on. That's the third thing we do to heal from lust. Fourth thing we do, we have to remember chastity. And I know that sounds really buttoned up and conservative, but chastity in its original term actually didn't mean just refraining from all sexual activity. It actually didn't hold a low view of sexual activity originally. The idea of chastity in its deepest sense means becoming someone who loves others holistically and does not reduce them down. It means not using other bodies as a means to our end. It means committing to holistic love, not physical lust. That's what chastity really means, which means all of us in this room are called to chastity to some level. There's a woman who wrote a book called Glittering Vices on this. She describes chastity, I think, really, really well. Rebecca Kininick the Young is her name. She said, chastity is a pro-love lifestyle and therefore a virtue one needs, whether single, married, old, or young. It's not something you need only when you're dating or surfing the internet. It's a quality of one's character evident in all areas of one's life. 
It's a project of becoming a person with an outlook that allows one to selflessly appreciate good and attractive things, most especially bodies and the pleasures they afford, by keeping those goods ordered to the good of the whole person and his or her vocation to love. Christianity's fundamental question is, how can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversation, my behavior, how can those things make me a person who is best prepared to give and receive love in relationship with others? That's what chastity looks like. It sounds great to me, friends. So whether you're in a relationship or pursuing a romantic relationship or just living as a single adult who wants to cultivate healthy friendships and relationships, commit to pursuing each person in a way that seeks their comprehensive good, their holistic flourishing. See everyone as a beloved soul and body created by God and commit yourself to loving all parts of them in the ways that your relationship allows. And what you'll find is when you do that, you'll experience far deeper connection in friendship and in intimacy with the people in your lives. And finally, friends, may we always remember what Nathan reminds David of, that we follow a God who puts away our sin. So often sex is loaded with shame for us. Attraction is loaded with shame for us. Remember that we follow a God who forgives. Remember that he's always inviting us into deeper and fuller life in him. There is a better relational life waiting for us when we turn to God and let him shape us. When we do the thing that David failed to do here. When we do that, he will turn us from lusters to lovers. He will give us his eyes to see every person as beloved sons and daughters, beloved bodies, beloved souls. Let's pray, friends.